Welcome back to the NovPod, episode 11, Emergencies. As always, we're hosted by Anesthesia on Air, brought to you in association with the Royal College of Anaesthetists. I'm one of your co-hosts, Owen Dorr. I'm an anaesthetic registrar working in Thames Valley. And with me, as always, is my partner in apnea time, Duncan Kemp. So today, we're going to go through why anaesthesia emergencies are a bit different, how you can generally approach them, and then we go through some specific examples. We heavily reference the Association of Anaesthetists Quick Reference Handbook throughout, and I can thoroughly recommend that you go away and have a look at it. We also have some other links in bio for you to look at. So, without further ado, let's get on with the episode. Emergencies. Emergencies, indeed. There's a reason we're doing an entire episode about this. Anesthetic emergencies are different to other medical emergencies, albeit there is a lot of crossover. Today, we want to drill down into why anesthetic emergencies are different, talk about whether we can predict them or not, identify people at risk of them, can we prevent them, then talk to a kind of generalised approach as an obvious you can take to start thinking about them and then give you some examples of these specific emergencies because some of them sound pretty terrifying, like laryngospasm. Why aren't these anaesthetic emergencies different? The broadest way to think about it is the fact that you're not only dealing with a patient, you're dealing with a surgical stimulus and also you're dealing with your equipment and an emergency can be generated from any one of those. The next thing is your patient is often anaesthetised or in the process of being anaesthetised or woken up from anaesthesia where these emergencies happen. It boils down to a few broad categories. Time frame, then the source of the emergency and the uncertainty around the cause, and then the treatment. Going down to time frame, a lot of these emergencies will unfold in seconds to minutes. So there's a much higher pressure to sort them quickly as they can cause rapid deterioration and leading to another emergency, which is much worse. Makes sense. Then the source of the emergency itself. Not only have we got to worry about patient medical emergencies being triggered by something we've done anaesthetically, but then also anaesthetic-specific emergencies, surgical emergencies, and then equipment emergencies. They can all cross over and more than one can happen at the same time. That's where the complexity can inject itself and cause a lot of stress. It's like being an airplane pilot, although they'll probably be sick of aviation metaphors by now. Well, Um, no, we're getting to them early, aren't we? So, yeah, we'll pretend that we were the first people to link pilots and anaesthesia. (laughs) Oh, that's that's an interesting novel idea you have, Duncan, of linking aviation to anaesthetics. Tell me more. Well, aviation, again, the scariest parts are takeoff and landing. The maintenance in the sky tends to be the bit where you need to have vigilance in order to spot errors and equipment malfunction and potential danger, much like anaesthesia. There are some treatments that novices may not have used before things i can think of as intralipid or yeah, dantrolene or even before heard of intralipid or dantrolene yeah exactly it, right. it might even be the first time you're hearing it now so in which case don't spill your coffee we will go over it yeah. but the way you treat emergencies which do have crossover elsewhere so for example anaphylaxis in anesthesia in trained hands we give iv adrenaline in a reduced dose also there is 
far more of a human factors element. Oh, yeah. In anaesthetic emergencies, identifying human factors affecting yourself, but your team, acknowledging that you need other members of the team there. No matter how experienced you are, if there is an anaesthetic emergency, you need more hands on deck. What happened when we were novices? I dealt with emergencies as a novice, and I found it pretty difficult to use some of those themes that Duncan mentioned. Yeah, it's hard when you're a novice, when you encounter one of those emergencies for almost not to scar you a little bit because of the stress involved and the sudden nature of it. Even if there is a good outcome, it can make you paranoid for some time that that event will happen again. It takes a while to step back down from that anxiety Mm. back to being vigilant. I remember quite early on my novice period dealing with laryngospasm. It's kind of a bizarre concept until you see it happen in front of you. And I remember that happened on a quick turnover list where the consultant and I were in and out, in and out to try and get the patients all done. And then suddenly one patient went into laryngospasm and I just remember hearing this noise, losing some of my monitoring, going, oh my God, what's going on? And then having to try and stop yourself from being in that panic moment and actually think, how do I deal with this? And I was luckily with a very experienced ODP who said, this is laryngospasm, we should do this, grab the consultant. All resolved and always fine in the end. It's tricky from going from a kind of rigmarole of doing a patient, putting them to sleep, doing that rinse and repeat several times and nothing's going wrong and then suddenly something changes. It can be a very challenging thing to switch gears and go, okay, there's an emergency now. When I was a novice, I remember I had a laparoscopic gynecological procedure where there was insufflation of the peritoneum. The patient's heart rate went down to 25. I squeak to the surgeon oh uh this is uh bad uh could you uh release uh the peritoneum pressure i also then asked the odp to get me my atropine things recovered i then sweated quite a lot i found it difficult speaking to a surgeon who was a surgical consultant of many years as if he was a peer Can we predict that we will encounter emergencies or deterioration in patients? Absolutely. Sometimes it's harder in some cases than others. A lot of it is to do with our identification of the risks that the patient will have, the risks that the anaesthetic we are doing will involve, and the risks that the surgery will involve as well. Many emergencies can potentially stem from these. If we think about a patient, what risks could a patient have? A classic example is a child who has recently had a cold and is still quite chorizal, they're going to be at very high risk of laryngospasm and bronchospasm. Identifying that high risk and actually escalating it to discuss with someone to say, is it appropriate for us to do this now? Can we avoid this? Or if we do need to go ahead, how can we be as safe as possible and vigilant as possible to make sure this doesn't happen? Then going on to the anaesthetic risks. So obviously a general anaesthetic with insertion of any airway, you're going to potentially risk laryngospasm, potentially risk aspiration in patients where it's an emergency and they have a full stomach. So you need to prepare for these. And this is things like we've talked about before, doing our anaesthetic room checks, making sure our suction is working, planning our intubation correctly and doing a rapid sequence induction, preparing our emergency drugs in case of hypotension in patients who are very dehydrated. And then the last one, Duncan, you were saying? The surgery itself. Prevention of problems happening at certain surgical points. For example, knife to skin. If you have a patient who is not deeply anaesthetized enough or analgesed enough for knife to skin, you will get a reaction. And that reaction could be anything from tachycardia and hypertension to laryngospasm, bronchospasm. 
further into the surgical side of things, if you have quite complex surgery like vascular surgery and you know there's a point at which reperfusion is going to happen, there will be predictable hypotension and metabolic derangement. So you can prepare yourself to try and mitigate the effect on the patient. That's a very interesting physiological phenomenon to think about as reperfusion after a period of ischemia. An easier one to pitch to our novices is major hemorrhage. Yeah. If you see the blood's coming out and you are at let's say 1.5 litres, which you know will give them a certain level of shock, you could call for a major hemorrhage pack or you could predict it before you started surgery by making sure you had group and save and cross-match blood and making sure that you've got a blood-giving set and a wide-bore cannulate. How do you think we can prevent anaesthetic emergencies? Prevention comes ultimately down to our pre-anaesthetic and our intra-anaesthetic and post-anaesthetic planning. Part of it is specifics with the anaesthetic and the surgery. Maybe in your prep stage, you've discussed at the WHO team brief that you're concerned about this patient's diabetes, for example, or you're concerned about their airway and you've asked the ODP to bring in a video laryngoscope. Other planning could include making sure you have your emergency drugs drawn up and making sure, as we mentioned in our ODP episodes, that you've got good communication with all staff because that helps minimise those human factors. You've checked your anaesthetic machine, so you know your equipment's working. And another part of that is being vigilant for deterioration. At first, when you're a novice, that is really, really tiring. I remember just standing, staring at the monitor, waiting for numbers to go wrong because I was paranoid something was going to happen, even though things wouldn't. And eventually you can pull yourself back from that once you get a bit more comfortable. Yeah. But it's important to maintain that situational awareness of what you're doing, what your equipment's doing, what the surgeon is doing as well in order to preempt, say, oh, actually, this patient was already in a bit of pain and they needed quite a lot to go off to sleep. Do I need to give them an extra painkiller or deepen them a little bit more before the surgeon does knife to skin to prevent hypertension, tachycardia or laryngospasm? And that's why all these things that seem like arduous checklists are actually quite important. So going through the WHO, if you listen to everything that's on there, they're all about trying to prevent emergencies. So does this patient have any allergies? What operation are we doing? These are things to help our planning together to make sure that we're not causing mistakes that could be avoided. How can we approach an emergency or a problem in a general way? There's many ways we could talk about that. But I think one thing to emphasise is human factors is a massive part of anaesthesia, be it dealing with an anaesthetic emergency or going as an anaesthetist to another emergency. You very quickly develop the skill of needing to make your voice heard, yeah. assigning tasks and becoming a leader or at least a co-leader of a team. That's what me and Duncan want to get across. Don't be afraid to use your voice and say, I'm unhappy here, this needs to happen. So human factors are really just like anyone saying they're soft. They lead to results which are hard outcomes. They're skills, not soft skills. Part of that is, during this emergency, communication. Identify what the issue is and say aloud to the team. Say that you need help if you need help and select the right team member to go. So don't pick a day one person who doesn't know the hospital system. Pick an experienced scrub nurse to go and put out that anaesthetic emergency call and let you know. Maybe don't send away your ODP, who's an experienced airway pair of hands to have during this and utilise people as you can. And that's part of what Duncan's mentioning, of being a team leader and delegating tasks, using people's names with closed-loop feedback communication. Is there another theme that you want to talk about and how you've adapted to deal with emergencies as time has gone on, Duncan? Linking from that last point, 
As a novice, you have an extremely low threshold to call for help. You should never feel like you can't call for help. You're there to learn. And it's far better to get someone to come and say, oh, no, this is okay. It's expected because of X. Yeah. Than for something to then spiral to tachycardia, hypotension, cardiac arrest. No one thinks less of you. Exactly, exactly. And it's all part of your learning process as well. You need to gain that feel for what is normal and what is abnormal under general anesthesia or during an anesthetic in a specific type of surgery. And it's hard to do that if you think you're fumbling through and you can't ask for help. Being someone that mentors people now, it improves my confidence if someone says, I'm unhappy and I'm uncertain about this. And that makes me happier than someone who's like, right, I'll push on and see how it goes. Yeah, absolutely. Another theme that's quite important is trying to take away your cognitive load. Back when I was a med student or F1 or F2, I thought it was really important to be that person that's able to come up with 100 facts, list things off by rote, no drug doses off by heart, because that's how real leaders acted. And actually, it's not. You're adding to a cognitive load, which has a chance to make mistakes. If you are leading a scenario... And you have something called the Association of Anesthetics Quick Reference Handbook. Ask someone who's not doing anything to read through the scenario that you've got. And we'll go into how that book is laid out later. And that will take off a cognitive load. Don't wing it. Say when you don't know. You can tell when someone's fudging it. Yeah. A lot of the initial steps of the treatment algorithms are very similar. And if you can drill those in then you know that you can start the stabilisation process early and then you can get the handbook out to reference what you need to do next. Exactly. Then you get out your finishing moves, which is like getting intralipid. But guess what? You don't put intralipid on until the option's at 100% and you're ventilating okay. Exactly. And you've called for help and you've got another pair of hands who can go deal with the intralipid. So summarised points of how to generally approach an anaesthetic emergency or problem. We've talked about the calling for help very early and having a low threshold to do so. Speaking up and developing that skill of speaking up up, even if there is a potential hierarchy between you and the surgical side or medical side. Dealing with human factors, establishing a leading role, and that will come again with the time and experience, and then knowing where to look to get help. So quick reference handbook, DAS guidelines, checklists, particularly intubation checklists, and then drug dosing. I would also say do the simple things well and stay calm. Stick to the basics, do the basics well, and trust your training and who you are. Take a breath. I think that's the thing. I actually quote Modern Family. Phil Dunphy once said, fast is smooth, smooth is fast. And that's what I think about in an emergency. Less haste, more speed. Clear minds, full hearts can't lose. Oh, that's very inspirational. From uh, Friday Night Lights. We've talked a bit about the Anaesthetic Association Quick Reference Handbook. And if we were sitting next to you and flipping through it, you might say to us, Owen and Duncan, what are these emergencies that I've never heard of before? How do we split them up? They're well split up into an undefined diagnosis, which is either a sign or a symptom or a certain form of deterioration, and then a specific working diagnosis. And often within the algorithm, it will very handily lead you down. And if you get to a certain point, it will then say, see this page because you've reached that diagnosis. It can be quite a challenge to differentiate between two potential diagnoses with one common problem that starts them both off. And often some working diagnoses, for example, anaphylaxis, can present in a multitude of ways, be it hypotension, difficult to ventilate, hypoxia. Let's go on to those specific diagnoses or ones that you may have commonly treated but present a bit different in anaesthesia. 
You've mentioned laryngospasm before, Duncan. It sounds terrifying. It can be terrifying. The key to this is basically laryngospasm is quite unique to anesthesia because it can happen in almost a spectrum of severity, but also at a spectrum of time points, most commonly on induction and emergence. It can, however, happen during maintenance if there is something wrong with your depth of anesthesia and the intensity of stimulation. It's something to be vigilant of the whole time. It is a spasm of the vocal cords which shut, which means you can't get air in or out of the patient. That can therefore lead to hypoxia, agitation, seesaw breathing. That also comes down to the spectrum of the presentation. It can flag up to you as anything from a noisy airway where you're still ventilating and oxygenating just about to complete loss of ventilation. Yeah. which then causes acute hypoxia. There is a spectrum of how it presents, and if it presents on the milder side, it can quickly accelerate to the severe side. We mentioned about prevention and predicting those patients who will be at high risk of laryngospasm, or if you have had an episode of laryngospasm already with them, if it wasn't predicted, be prepared for further laryngospasm or be prepared for it. So have agents you can use to deepen anesthesia, have an airway plan when you're waking yeah, the patient up. And have up. an SOS plan of if you cannot rescue it, such as a muscle relaxant, such as succinamethonium. And that's why most paediatric anaesthetists will have sucks drawn up with the needle attached if they're doing gas induction so that they can break that laryngospasm if they need to. You don't get laryngospasm whilst you still got an endotracheal tube in because an endotracheal tube goes through the cords it can't close over the tube. Okay? If that tube is in the right place. If that tube's in the right place. I don't know what you've been intubating, Tonka, or what your technique is. Uh, tubes uh, migrate sometimes, tubes that's migrate. all I'm saying. You try and break that laryngospasm with a increase of peep to about 40 to 50 centimetres, and you then can either use propofol or, if you need to, then succinamethonium. But that's why drawing up those emergency drugs of propofol, succinamethonium, if you're on your own whilst you're on call, are important. So we've talked about one airway emergency. Mm -hmm. What's an even more terrifying airway emergency that we come across in anaesthetics? I guess that is the one that makes people break out and sweat. Consultants, ODPs, even surgeons can't intubate, can't oxygenate. And that used to be can't intubate, can't ventilate. The difficulty is that is usually a human factor's boiling point of someone who is stressed, who has failed to intubate three times on the DAS algorithm. They then can't ventilate. And then there is a patient who is deteriorating in front of the eyes. There are ways that people can try and prevent this by predicting people who have difficult airways and considering different anaesthetic techniques. And a lot of the human factor stuff we've talked about, which you will nurture during your novice period, come into play during that can't intubate, can't oxygenate scenario. Yeah. Because that is the classic example of where people get task fixated you lose the broader view of the patient and where the algorithm is really important to stop you jumping off that precipice of being so focused on, I need to get a tube in. Yeah, you yeah. actually know this is not what's best for the patient. Let's go back to that algorithm. Let's be able to challenge this hierarchy of decision-making in Good. order to make sure that we do establish oxygenation. There's opportunities where you can try and wake people up, but usually if this happens in an emergency, you then have to think about your plan D, which is front of neck access. It's a skill set to have to save someone's life potentially one day. And that's why the algorithms for DAS will probably be one of the most quoted in anaesthetics, because it, it allows for a very clear stepwise process that anyone can walk into any theatre in the UK and understand how it's operating and then thereby challenge it.
Now, what about some specific anaesthetic-related emergencies, which you wouldn't really see outside of anaesthesia? To strike me off off the bat, there's something called local anaesthetic toxicity, which is where essentially a dose of local anaesthetic has been delivered into the general circulation. What will that cause? Well, they're sodium channel blockers. So guess what? That's a Vaughan Williams class one agent that can cause arrhythmias leading to cardiac arrest and it can cause profound hypotension, go up to the brain and circulation, cause seizures. That is quite a terrifying combination of things to happen and it can have shock resistant cardiac arrest. There is a algorithm and a way to go through it on the quick reference handbook. Just know there's a drug that we give called intralipid. So that's why when you get taken around your anaesthetic department, they'll say this is where the intralipid's kept. Okay. And it's one of those things that as a SHO I knew off by heart is what dose of intralipid to give. Yeah. Similar to that in that it's quite unique to anesthesia is malignant hyperthermia. Oh, yeah. That's a sweaty situation as well. Exactly. It's one of those situations where often people can go their whole careers and not ever see it, but it's drilled in in simulation because it is such a dramatic emergency when it does happen. And again, there is a very specific antidote for this, which you will be shown during your induction as to where it lives. And just a brief background to that, usually two anaesthetic agents cause it, so succimethonium and the gases, they bind onto something called your rhinocene receptors in your muscles and essentially cause a huge breakdown of muscle with release causing acidosis huge amounts of co2 huge amounts of temperature and it had an 85 percent fatality rate due to testing its prevalence has reduced and if you hear about someone having it you then avoid sucks and volatiles and they have a good anesthetic but it's something to be aware of and something that you will get drilled on that's unique to anesthetics it's not unique to anesthetics but presents in different ways is anaphylaxis and we've had a big focus on that recently with the national audit projects we've mentioned previously number six was on anaphylaxis which happens one out of eight thousand of our anesthetics duncan what should we be letting the novpodders know about anaphylaxis so they compare themselves it's important to realize that anaphylaxis can present in a multitude of different ways at a multitude of different time frames as well it can present very suddenly it can present as late as up to i believe an hour after delivery of a drug it doesn't follow the classical presentation when someone's awake not under anesthesia so often rash is not often seen plus the patient's covered so you can't see it and often the first sign will be something that could potentially cross over with another potential working diagnosis so high airway pressures hypotension loss of or decrease in your entire co2 trace Mm -hmm. so it's very important you need to be able to troubleshoot that whilst thinking could this be anaphylaxis anaphylaxis? because you won't necessarily see a rash firstly because the patient's covered and secondly because that's a late presentation sign and doesn't always happen with anaphylaxis as well it's important to emphasize our management of anaphylaxis as anesthetists can differ slightly in the way we deliver things like adrenaline yeah because in the algorithm it does specify in trained hands you can give iv adrenaline which you don't really often give anywhere else except in a cardiac arrest scenario. But again, it's important to emphasize that in trained hands. So once you're used to giving that, you can give it. And if in doubt, you stick with normal medical management. Which is iron. A lot of the emergencies, there's a crossover with how they present. And it's important to, particularly when you get a bit more experience and you can take that broader view, is look at 
not only you're assessing your patient, treating your patient, assessing your equipment, but looking at the time point at which this emergency has happened and the preceding events, because that will help you narrow down your diagnosis. And that's quite unique to anesthesia and surgery. Exactly. And that is what we want you to come away with. You will recognise patterns, remain situationally aware and stay calm and trust your training. Yeah, trust your training. Call for help. Welcome to the outro. So we've gone over why the emergencies are different, some basic tips in how to approach them, along with some specific emergencies you may not have heard of before. As always, we have some links for you to look at, which is the Quick Reference Handbook and the DAS algorithm for can't intubate, can't oxygenate. For this episode, we have simplified the pathophysiology for MH. Go and look it up for a more detailed explanation. A really good tip that Rahul told me when I was going through my novice period was that he mentally rehearses emergencies in his head. Pick out a scenario that he can then mentally rehearse in his head what the next steps would be and then check it with the QRH guide. You can't expect yourself to know how to deal with these emergencies from day one. So that's why simulation and this quick reference handbook and going through it yourself is really important for your learning. Speaking of Rahul, he's up next on our Drugs Part 2 episode. So we look forward to metaphorically see you there. As always, if you've enjoyed the episode, please share with a fellow novice colleague so that they can pick up some of the top tips that we have given out. Thank you and goodbye.